Once again, it is Friday, and it's time for another episode of High and Weird School. No, I'm just kidding. This is Weird and High School, the podcast that invites creatives to share why they create, because at the end of the day, we were all weird in high school. And I'm your host, your favorite John Kuzak with an acoustic guitar strapped around him, your favorite person who quotes High Fidelity on a regular basis and compares each version of the movie, the series, and the book. I'm Bretton Lee John. I am also coincidentally the guy that is responsible for the attack on the music industry, the the corporate power force that is smoking ghost recordings. And as the result of that, I host this podcast and I plug smoking ghost recordings and I hide it under the guise of them sponsoring us. But at the end of the day, it's just it's me. I'm doing all of this um, and patting myself on the back for it because I'm in an egotistical soul trap. I'm alone by myself all the time in this office, working on the computer, looking at numbers on the internet, and and I've started to dissociate, and the only thing that I can identify with is my own warped perception of value. And on that topic of warped perception of value, on a much more serious note, I have a fantastic, fantastic, amazing conversation with Von Beaker today. Von Beaker is an Edmonton-based songwriter and just an all-around cool guy. We talk about Hayden, we talk about all sorts of fun stuff, being motivated, setting achievable goals. This is overall a really, really beneficial conversation and I think the songwriters and artists out there will see a lot of value in what Dave has to say. Without further ado, please, please, please enjoy this conversation with Von Beaker. It was such a fantastic time to talk to him. No, no, I'm totally ready. All right. When did you start getting into music? When did you make this bad turn in your life? Uh, yeah, well, I keep making it over and over again. I keep having, like, I keep driving past, uh, oh, I'm going to turn that off, sorry put my do not disturb on here i i keep driving past the off ramps and i just don't take them so it's uh but when did i first make that bad decision probably when i was you know the first memory i have of making music uh was my parents brought back this like it was like a casio keyboard from the states somewhere some trip they had been on and i remember teaching myself the forrest gump uh theme song and the Jurassic Park theme song. I think both those movies came out around the same time. And I just must have spent hours just like by ear trying to figure out the so the music from those movies. That's probably the first thing I I really uh, like invested some real time in with music. So I would have been probably like, uh, what would I have been? I don't know, like 14 or something. No, that was, I was making music before that. Yeah, I, yeah, you know, earlier, I must have only maybe, I'm going to say I was 12 max, maybe I was younger, but at most 12, and I got a, it was called a Rap Master keyboard. Have you ever heard of one of these, Breton? No, I haven't. Oh, man, you got to do some online research. I'm sure it was a lot more terrible than I remember it, but um, it had like a built-in scratch pad, so you could do like little record scratches on it, and uh, a couple like really cheesy like late 80s early 90s rap kind of samples you could hit i don't remember what it said but it's probably like hit me or something like that over and over again um 
I'm imagining like a bop it, but made for music. That's exactly, that is exactly what it was. Yeah. A bop it. Basically they probably just like took the brains of that and made it into a bop it eventually. So yeah, I was, I don't know for, since I was a kid for sure. When did you start? When did you get involved in a local music scene or trying to take anything seriously? Was there a first band? Did you start out solo? Yeah, there was kind of a big break for me. So I I was pretty into music throughout, you know, being a kid and then kind of kept interested in it off and on into high school. And then in high school, got in a band and um, started doing some songwriting with that band and, um, you know, won a high school battle of the bands and those kind of like things that make you think you're way more awesome than you actually are um, trick you into keeping going. So I... Uh, we did that for a while. I think into the, like the first year of college, we were playing around some local festivals and stuff. Like we weren't a huge band by any means. Um, and then I just kind of, I kind of set it aside. I have a, I have a strange um, religious upbringing history that could probably be a whole nother podcast, but suffice it to say for now, I, I kind of had this crisis of faith in my life where I felt like, you know, rock and roll was evil and not what I should be doing with my time. And uh, I kind of just quit music altogether. I actually, um, well, I tried, walked away from it. And it wasn't until you know, several several years later that I realized it was kind of like destroying my soul from the inside out to cut that part of myself away. Um, and so I started kind of slowly getting back into it. And then it was about 2015, around the end, that I decided... I wasn't getting any younger and I have a lot of songs to sing and I think I'm decent at it. And if I want to make a go of it, it's only going to get harder from here. So I want to try it now. <laughs> so yeah, this current iteration as Von Beaker uh, was like around the very, very end of 2015. So that crisis of faith period lasted into your adulthood. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of, uh, I ended up, um, joining a church. I ended up going to Bible college actually for four years so that I have a theology degree. Um, it's the only degree I have actually. And uh, kind of kind of went into working in that world. I was going to be a youth pastor. Um, had this whole kind of like future lined up that didn't have anything to do with making art. And um, that ended up being really hard on me. So I had to kind of um, reckon. I had to reckon with that. <laughs> and it took me took me a lot of years to to do that and then a lot more years to actually like start thinking maybe I should I, I tried not to uh, make music my profession for a very long time that's the short answer and I was unsuccessful you know it's funny because you were talking about the high school battle of the bands and I was going to interject and say that I I internalize a hatred for those people because I always wish <laughs> that I felt supported in the way that I would have started earlier. Like I didn't start. I think I, I played a koi mic, uh, one of the ones that got to happen, and I realized that was the two year anniversary of my first mic, which was at koi when I was nice. like twenty. But I see all these people who you know start when they're fifteen or whatever, and. And it's like, oh, well, I could be five years better now. So, well, I have a lot of empathy for you because, yeah, I can say coming back into the scene, um, 
I was like 35, 36 and started going to open mics and realizing I don't know anybody. Like I, I'm not a part of this at all. I felt so alone and scared and cause, cause I'd, I had known people kind of in the, the world that I had spent, you know, the last 15 years in, in, in churches and stuff. And they, and I had played shows to the, for those friends that I had had and things like that, but to like go out into the real world and start playing in, in bars and open mics and stuff, it was terrifying. Still is terrifying a lot of the time, to be honest, but it's getting, <laughs> it's getting easier. For me, it was like the, the McEwen, uh, college thing, right? See, you have, I would see all these people that just seemed to know each other so well and seemed to be so successful in this scene that seemed to be so cohesive and already kind of pre-existing. And, and it was like a couple of years later when I realized I was like, oh, most of these people went to school together, like went to music college together. That's where this comes from. And so, yeah, I missed out on that. I think it's, uh, it's been a detriment for sure. You know, I do find that interesting because I'm not going, I'm going to be careful with what I say because I don't want to disrespect any of the wonderful people that are my friends in the music community, but I always have felt a little like an outlier against, there's this group of people in the Calgary music scene that they, they all play with each other and it's very like, like it reminds me of my small rural high school. Um, And I feel so much not a part of that in a way, those people are my friends and, and I don't want to uh, sound like I have ill will, but do you think that there's an element of, of artistic benefit to that separation to being able to hold kind of just an influence and an attitude that is separate from what kind of intermingles in the scene? Yeah, I'm sure there is. Um, and I will say too, I, I, I haven't, I haven't, I don't know that I've experienced it in direct ways other than like what I've put on myself, if that makes sense. Like I've kind of assumed I'm in a room. I assume people don't want to talk to me, so I don't talk to them. I mean, I can't really say that nobody wants to talk to me then. Cause I kind of pre kind of predetermined that situation. Right most of the time when I've actually approached people and, you know, tried to strike up a conversation or, or work together on a project even or something, I've had really good uh, response. Like once I've got comfortable enough to kind of actually try and make some headway that way, um, I've had really good response. So uh, I think, I think mostly it's an internal, I'm, I'm my own worst enemy probably with that. And I would, I'd be willing to bet and most people I've asked this question in the scene, regardless of how much respect I have for them, um, kind of admit to feeling the same way a lot of the time. It's kind of the classic imposter syndrome thing, right? That I think every creative deals with. So I don't know. I don't know if there's people who don't feel that at all. Maybe those are the people I have real problems with then, Breton. <laughs> Well, it is this interesting thing in trying to be involved in in arts because I think a lot of us are driven there by some feeling of separateness or weirdness. Yeah. Um, and 
it can be easy to forget that, uh, that maybe the person you're talking to who seems like they're cool guying you is just as insecure and shy as you are. And that's why you're getting what, you, you know, that's why you're picking up your internalized version of what may seem rude, but is them being just as awkward or, or having those same doubts. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. I yeah. Certainly. So, I mean, I'm sure like a lot of what I did to kind of bridge that was, was I've done things like what you're doing right now over the years. Like I, pardon me, I had a podcast of my own for a little while that I would love to return to one day. But um, part of the reason I did that was so that I could have a good excuse to talk to these people <laughs> and kind of like, you know, bridge the gap and, and um, make some inroads and stuff. And I think that worked. Like, I think just, just being willing to give something back to the community before I was asking for a whole bunch from it. I think in time that, that does always pay off usually anyways. I don't know if you've found that, if you've been able to kind of like connect with some people um, through having conversations like this that maybe you wouldn't have been able to otherwise. You know, it's an interesting thing. Like mostly it's been my friends so far, um, mm -hmm. but I am lining up some guests that are bigger deals than uh, maybe I'm entitled to uh, that are <laughs> friends of friends. Yeah. And I, I guess you're bridge to cross. Right. And it is an interesting thing in trying to, you know, you just got to ask people. That's kind of the nature of it. Um, yep. Which, so sometimes you're emailing people, you like, like Dan Mangan's a guy that I had coffee with him, which is a whole story um, on his benevolence. But, but then you're like sending a DM and you're like, Dan, would you do this? Maybe, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm sure that guy gets tons of messages. Right. But yeah. You, you kind of have to grapple with this, you know, the worst that happens is they don't answer. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, normally it's the worst they say is no, but to me, non-answer is worse than a no. <laughs> um, I, but, I agree. <laughs> but the worst that happens is they don't answer you. And the best that happens is that you have someone on a podcast. I'm really trying to figure out in this current environment, this tourless environment, how you make a meaningful connection with anyone. And I really miss that it seems like every music friend I have is from hanging out and drinking beers after the show. Yeah. Yeah. And the totally unintentional stuff, right? Like the accidental connections that happen. Yeah. And I just, I like the idea of trying to generate some type of way to still make those connections and even just provide some of those conversations. Like the working songwriter is one of my favorite podcasts and that's just because it, feels like you get to participate in something where, you know, they'll reference a pedal and you just, you feel included. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, these are my people. Yeah. And that's why like a lot of the podcasts I listen to too, it's like, they'll start talking about politics. I'm like, talk about guitars. I can listen to political <laughs> podcasts if I want. I'm here for yeah. guitars. More guitars. But have you watched, uh, the, uh, you know, the podcast song exploder? Yeah. That's a great podcast. They have a Netflix show now. I don't know if you've seen it or I think I turned on the REM episode and it was one of those wake up at 4am with the <laughs> lamp on and the remotes next to you thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have it on my watch list of like, I intend to watch this one day, but I haven't gotten into it yet. But I do really enjoy that show just cause you can kind of, I, I had this idea built up in my mind and this is a good segue that 
you need to, I, I do believe in, in projecting what you want. So I have made a point of recording in actual studios and hiring session players and trying to make these visions come true. Mm-hmm. Um, I do find that maybe the listener tends not to care um, <laughs> the way you care. And then you're like, oh, I spent $5,000 making a record and no one, no one cares. But you listen to that podcast and it's really interesting. Like Peter Bjorn and John Young Folks was an accident. They were messing around. They didn't use symbols because they didn't have a treated room. Oh, I got to listen to that. I didn't know there was an episode. I haven't listened. I don't listen to it regularly. So I didn't even know there was. But yeah, I love that song. I love the sound of that song. So I'd love to hear how that came together. That's really cool. You know, I had, I, I was doing a session with somebody uh, about a month ago and we were just like, just in my home studio here and we were just um, doing just scratch tracks and stuff to try and decide what, what he wants to do with these songs. And, uh, and I had this idea in my head. I was like, oh, I have this total drum group that I think would be really cool. Can I just show you, uh, can I just try this and show it to you? It might be crazy or whatever. He's like, yeah, sure. So I just, um, I'm not a great drummer and I wanted it to be like really on the click and stuff. But I didn't want to waste a whole bunch of time. So I actually went to the drums. I th- literally threw my iPhone on the floor next to my foot, which is like the worst place. First of all, I mic the drums with w- one iPhone. And secondly, I put it in like the worst possible place. And I played this, this beat. I came back to the computer, uploaded it on my computer. I broke out the, the, uh, I basically like quantized it and then made a loop out of it and it sounded so cool and it was literally like like I think we're actually going to use um a track of it like probably not as the main drum track but I think we're going to reference it in the final mix just as a really unique kind of drum sound so yeah those those kind of accidents are so fun to me when I've come to realize that a lot of the things that a lot of the records I listen to that blow my mind are these, they're accidents or they're really improvisational. Um, they just have vibe, but it's so interesting. Like there's an American football episode and they wanted a song off of that first LP. They did the one that did nothing for years and then exploded and they didn't even have the original masters. (laughs) <laughs> like they didn't know where the tapes were because, you know, it was just something they did in college and didn't expect anyone to ever care about. Yeah. Or like Chad Van Galen blows my mind. And that's, you know, that first record, I think he made it in a bedroom in a house he was renting. Yeah. The first, first artist that really got me into songwriting uh, was Hayden in, you know, when his first record came out. Have and... we talked about Hayden before? I don't know. Did we talk about Hayden before? I don't think we have. I'll let you finish, but uh, but I have a lot about Hayden to say. Okay, great. So yeah, I got uh, everything I longed for. I mean, much music was big at the time. I was a uh, I was a teenager in the in the, like the much music heyday years, right, where we actually had music videos on TV, and I remember the uh, everything I longed for video came on, and I was just I I loved it. Like I just something about everything about that song. I just, I just loved it. The way his guitar was sounded like garbage, the way, you know, like there's everything about it. I, I loved for some reason. And so I looked, you know, kind of got into that. And then he recorded that album in his house on a four track. 
And, uh, and I remember being like, I either had a four track at the time or that's what caused me to want to go get one. But I was like, this is the same equipment that I have. Like there's nothing, nothing technical really standing between us. And I remember that being such a revelation. Anyway, I could say more about Hayden too, but I want to hear what you have to say about Hayden. I, I lived in Lethbridge for a year. I went to ULeth for one year and the record store used to be called Blueprint Records and I'm like 18 and I think I listen to cool music, right? Like I, I think I know cool music, but my version is like Mac DeMarco. Well, I don't know who American football is. I was just pretending it was you were talking. So <laughs> they are, uh, they're like sort of an emo rock band, like almost Death Cab for Cutie ish. Okay. Um, they made a record in like 99. No one cared about it like 2015 ish the internet decided it was amazing and now they get to play you know Lollapalooza and stuff um so one of those accidents but but I would go into blueprint records um and I'm like 18 and scared and I ask the guy I'm like actually you know what I think I think I was asking about a death cab for cutie record yeah. And he's like, ah, oh, they're no good after their first two albums, which is funny because that's an actual cliche. Like I've heard Ben Gibbard <laughs> reference that cliche himself. Um, and he's like, he starts just giving me this list of things to listen to that aren't the Death Cab for Cutie record I want. Right. <laughs> and at the top of the list, like circled with asterisks is Hayden. And I, I listened to it and I didn't get it. And uh, I, had, I had a folder on my computer called English 30. That was where all my songs were because yeah. I didn't want anyone to find it. Um, <laughs> it sounds so boring. No one will ever look in here. Yeah, no one. Like, that's, they'll think that's actual homework. Um, <laughs> and I thought I couldn't sing. That was my biggest hesitation forever, or the, at least the excuse I made because I was scared. And I heard Hayden at first and I didn't get it. And then bad as they seem, I think auto played on Spotify later. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, holy crap, this is the best song I've ever heard. It's, it's insane. Like yeah. it's so neurotic and, and raw. And I was like, if this guy can sing, I can sing. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I've, uh, I, I, I got to, I, I ended up getting the 20th anniversary, uh, record of that. It's one of the few. I can say that and sound cool, but it's really one of the few vinyls that I've bought that's not from a thrift store at some point. But um, <clears throat> he, my wife and I went to that show and he played that album um, start to finish. I think there were one or two songs. Like there's some, there's some pretty terrible songs on that album. Um, I, lo I love them all uh, in their own like weird way. But I think, well, I, I think my perception from that show is he's not, he's not as he's not equally proud of all of the songs on that first album like there's some pretty pretty experimental kind of young songwriter trying out stuff stuff which is great but he doesn't play those songs anymore right so he was playing a lot of these songs for the first time he has in like decades and uh and when he played everything i long for he's like i have to change the lyrics to this because otherwise it's just it's way too creepy for me mm -hmm. to sing now <laughs> so i think the I think the girl and the mom are both like 10 years older now when he sings that song. It's funny because I, uh, it was actually through Hayden that I got into the national because he covered, uh, covered I Need My Girl 
for like national post or something on the okay and uh what was that sorry well, I was just going to say it's from him that I just got into Matt uh, Berninger. Is that how you say his last yeah, name? Yeah, 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 of the National. Yeah, and it was funny because he, he like referenced this album on on um, Twitter, and I'm like, oh, like he worked on this album, and, and he sang, sings or he's on one of the songs or something, or he's on one of the songs on his upcoming album, whatever. I was like, if there's a connection here, I'm going to check this out. And I listened to it, not having any idea who this guy was. And I was like, why haven't I heard of this guy before? This is amazing. And then after a while, I'm like, he sounds a lot like the singer from The National. Like, I literally did not know. And it was like two weeks later, I had to look it up. And I was like, uh, I'm an idiot. This is definitely the singer from The National. That's a that's a good record, that Matt Berninger record. Booker T produced it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's a great record. But, yeah, I... Oh, it's funny. One of my favorite from the year, and it snuck up at the end there for me. Yeah, totally. It's it's funny because I ended up I got into through Dan Mangan. I got into Astral Swans, my friend Matt Swan, um, and Hayden wore an Astral Swans T-shirt while opening for the national. And uh, I, every time I see Matt, I try to articulate how that would that would be like the end of me trying to achieve any success beyond that. <laughs> like, it's so funny to me that, that my friend Matt, who I think is awesome, had like th- this weird culmination of connections with like my idol Hayden wearing like my friend's shirt opening for my other idols. Yeah. That's amazing. Very so cool. So I was going to try to segue us into recording. Um, yeah what does home recording look like for you and have you exclusively recorded your music yourself? Yeah. So for me, uh, mostly yes. And really it's a financial decision. Uh, I've applied for grants a couple of times. I haven't had my lucky third try yet. So I continue to apply. I'll find out in February again, whether I have another rejection letter or get some money to do some studio recording. Um, but like, like I say, from way back when I was in high school, I was using that four track tape player. So I, I've spent a lot of time kind of recording in my room over the years. Um, and when I was going to take things more seriously, uh, I really wanted to invest in some more professional recording, but I have two teenage kids. I have like a house. I have, you know, all these things that cost money. (laughs) that aren't, uh, aren't my little side dreams. So I need to, um, that's where the money goes. So it's really been a, it's really been a financial struggle as far as, uh, like I'm not poor by any means or anything like that, but just having the the extra money to set aside just for this is really difficult. So, um, the money that I've have had, I've felt like it's probably the best long-term for me to invest in, equipment and training so that I can continue to uh, make music till I die, you know, (laughs) whether no matter what my kind of financial situation is or whether I get a grant or not, I just wanted to have control over that because I have so many, I feel like I have so much music in me to get out that I want to, I don't want anything to be in the way of that. So um, I'd, uh, I'm getting to a point now where I'm recording stuff a little faster that I think sounds a little better. 
I'm still not where I want to be, uh, but I've come a long way over the last few years, I think. And everything I've put out, I think everything I've released, I've recorded at home, sometimes with some other players, um, sometimes faking it with MIDI drums and things like that to pull it off. But I have, I have a, a whole EP sitting on a hard drive in a studio that's in limbo because I started kind of um, just paying for one song at a time as I could afford it from playing shows and things like that. And I, and I did get a fair ways with that. But then I got impatient because it was still going to take me so long to actually be able to, to finish it and then pay to master it and whatever. So I started working on a bunch of songs at home again just so I could be putting stuff out. I find that to be an interesting business decision in a way. And I agree with what you had to say about like, in a way I see if, if I can build a skill learning to record myself and every time I do record myself, I get better at it. Um, so there's something to show for it. And then, you know, your equipment that you invest in has residual value. Like I, I kind of, I feel the same way about if you, it's like, would I make vinyl? Well, it costs five grand to make a run of records that I almost guarantee you I wouldn't break even on. Yeah. For five yeah. grand, I could buy like a killer vintage guitar. And if everything goes wrong in my life, I can sell that guitar. My records yeah. have no value to anyone but me unless they become socially valuable. Yeah. 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 Vinyl's a whole nother example, isn't it? That's another thing I'd love to be able to make one day. Um, Partly just because I miss cover art, I miss album art. <laughs> As a, I'm a designer, like a graphic designer is kind of my other existence, and so I really miss um, being able to have something where the cover art is bigger than one square inch on a screen. Right. Well, liner notes. I'm a liner notes guy. I like. I mean, a lot of the records I listen to, I, I like to know where they were recorded and who played on them. And unless I bought Jay Mascus several shades of why I wouldn't know that Kurt Vile played guitar on it before he was Kurt Vile that we know now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's kind of a, I mean, they're trying, I, I hear they're trying to bring some of that back in, in certain ways. And I know the distributors are asking for more credits now because they say that different streaming platforms are starting to surface them in different ways, which is great. Um, I mean, the potential is awesome because you could listen to that record and see everybody that played on it and click on their name and immediately go and see everything else they've ever worked on, um, which is awesome. Uh, but that doesn't exist right now. And there's no, it's weird because it exists everywhere else on the internet. It's not like some wild technology that would be hard to do. It just hasn't been done for whatever reason. We talked the last time I saw you, which was, it was awesome to get to see you in that little burst of time that some yeah. shows happened. Yeah. In the little, the, the window between COVIDs. Yeah. Yeah. And that window was, I, I wish I valued it more. I was like, oh, the vibe's not right. And then here I am wishing for those again. But, uh, we talked about CDs, um, and you shared some, some very of the time stories about buying cds with all the money you made uh working was it kingsway mall oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh 
how do you feel about the state of music now with where do you see things going in terms of listening? How do you like to listen? Yeah, this is complicated. Um, I mean, I think everybody knows it's complicated, especially musicians, though. I, I will say, um, so we talked about that Matt uh, Berninger record. Am I saying his name right? Yeah. Bern- I yeah. don't know. Berninger, Berninger, it's something. Berninger, something like that. We talked about that record. Uh, like, in all honesty, uh, if I was in high school still, I mean, you know, I was definitely buying records then. But in all honesty, now, uh, if I didn't, if that wasn't one click away, like I was on Twitter and it's like, oh, I'll type that name into, or maybe it was even linked directly to it on Spotify or something. It was just so easy to access it and to listen to it. Um, would I have even listened to it? I mean, cause that stuff's, you know, it's probably not getting played on the radio. I don't know where, don't know where I would have come across it because I'm not, it's not like in high school where all my friends were listening to these cool bands and we were swapping CDs and saying, you got to go listen to this person or whatever. Like, um, yeah, I'm 40 now. It's like, well, a lot of people I know don't, don't listen to very much music or they, they, they don't, I don't know. It's it's not the same as when I was in high school anyways. So, um, Spotify, I will say on, in the plus column, I listen to way more music now than maybe I ever have in my life. Certainly more variety of music. Um, I, I listen to my Discover Weekly and my Release Radar every week, religiously. I listen to it. I can't wait for them to come out. I listen to the whole thing. I always go and uh, heart the songs that I like. And when they put a really random, terrible song in there for some reason, I always go and say I don't like it, <laughs> trying to train the robots as well as I can. And I've been introduced to like to some really incredible music through that. Um, that I just, I do not know how I would have found otherwise. And, and I also keep coming across artists where you talk about like going to find the credits. So, I'll, you know, I guess the modern version of that is I'll, I'll click on the artist's name and try and drill down and see what else they've done or whatever. Um, and these are artists I've never heard of and they're getting, you know, a million, a million listeners a month or whatever. Like they're, they're a big deal somewhere. Um, but I don't know how I would have heard of them else, else, in any way else. So it's kind of this, comp- I think all those little scenes probably existed before, but they're kind of all compressed into one place now, which is pretty amazing. And, you know, I just played, I've been playing like Zoom shows for uh, Christmas. That's kind of my latest pivot to try and make some, make some money and play some shows. Um, and I played a show on, Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for a group in mostly in Berlin. There were some people in Paris. There were some people in Milan. Like it was this European gathering, I guess, that they can't get together this year because of COVID, obviously. So they hired me to play this this show on Zoom. And for them, it was like six at night, but I was playing at 10 in the morning. Um, like there's no way I would do stuff like that if it wasn't for the way music is online uh, today. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, I think the opportunities are are pretty amazing, especially for somebody who's not, who has a family like myself. I can't be on the road touring 200 days a year. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for it. On the other hand, of course, as you know, 
I'm making, <clears throat> I think my entire streaming revenue, I just looked in my, my DistroKid bank the other day, and I've never taken anything out of it yet. And that's since 2016, I put my first release out. I think I have $71 in there. You know, seventeen or $71 sounds pretty good to me. I haven't done my U.S. tax forms because I can't figure out uh, which U.S. artists uh, union to subscribe to for that, for CD Baby. So I just maybe have like $20 in limbo with CD Baby. Yeah. Maybe, maybe 20. That sounds ambitious to me, actually. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm four, four, four and some years in, so <laughs> it's taken a while to get there, but it's a small, small money. I could play, I could play one show and have $10 CDs and I could walk away with, you know, 50 to a hundred bucks in CD sales pre pretty easily uh, at a good, good show. So not at every show, certainly, but the money's the money's still way better from physical CD sales for sure. I think it depends on your audience too, and like in trying to figure out if I was gonna do a physical copy of my new record, it's like I love it and I want to immortalize it that way, but it's it's sunk costs at least in the time that you can't be playing. Um, I don't find that people are apt to go on your website or onto Bandcamp and order your CD. No, I think I've only probably sold a couple of them uh, over the years on, on online. I mean, in person, it's much easier, but yeah. So, but you know, like the bigger question you asked about the state of music in general, I've, I've thought a lot about that. And I, I really do think like music is this kind of eternal spiritual thing that has always existed. I think it will always exist regardless of the way it attaches itself to business or doesn't. Um, I view myself as a singer-songwriter as a calling, more, more than just a business or a job. Like it's something, regardless of what my, vo my occupation is, I think my vocation is always going to be that, um, whatever that looks like. So I've, I've kind of, in some ways, had to divorce it from the economic model for myself to make it make sense and have value. But I also think back through history and like, um, you know, if it was 1880 and you wanted to hear a song, there'd be one or two people in your family who could play piano and you'd have a piano in the living room and you might have the sheet music and somebody would play it. Like that's how you listen to music. There, there were, I think a lot more people that felt like they could make music and they could sing and it was just something that everybody had not everybody but you know every community had their musicians and people that would do that and it wasn't such a such a specialized kind of celebrity machine as it's become now so i kind of look at all of history and i say like i i would love to make a whole bunch of money making music don't get me wrong and and be famous all those things sure i'll take it but if I look back over like the whole course of history, that's like a 50 to 100 year blip in all of history that that system has existed. And before that, um, you know, that just wasn't, at least to my knowledge, that, that kind of system, that kind of music economy in that way um, of being able to, to make some recorded music and then just sit on, sit and get fat off the profits of it over time. It's, that's, that's pretty 
pretty recent history. So if it were to, it's, if it were, it seems to a lot of people like that could never disappear. But I mean, if it were to disappear and you look at it on the grand timeline of history, it would really be a pretty small blip. So I'm not sure. I've thought about exactly that. I, uh, I think I talked to Sean Burns on the last episode about it, but, or I guess at this point it'll be two episodes ago. Um, but records didn't become mainstream in people's homes until like the fifties or sixties. Yeah. Um, and so really I'm, I was kind of taken aback by that because here I am holding on to this idea of like, I find myself really trapped in these two different nostalgia traps, which are, Oh, the sixties, you know, people cared. And then the nineties people cared. And, uh, you know, because that's when those are kind of my two eras of pre my life music that I identify with strongly. Um, I thought the whole thing about the nineties was that people didn't care. Right. Right. The (laughs) thing is like, well, and what the 90s did was it bred this DIY situation, but in the 90s, there were still oh. physical copies moving, right? So you could have a DIY record label that might become something. Like, I watched the... So just to finish that point, it is... It's really hyper-associating with something that hasn't even been as long as my grandparents have been alive. Um, yeah. And it's not like... I don't see grandma and go like, Oh, an ancient artifact. Right. It's like sits there and watches TV like I do. And when she was born, people, people had radios. That's really the source they had. Yeah. Um, I watched the Oasis documentary, which I actually strongly recommend for all the, uh, insecure artists out there. (laughs) Nice. But it basically, it ends with, them playing for like a hundred thousand people and uh noel gallagher saying like that was the best time and that'll never happen again because you know with the internet people can't all share the same experience and i hear doomers talking about how there will never be another beatles i kind of think there shouldn't ever be another beatles like (laughs) i think it's amazing actually that i mean you look at youtube stars everyone has their own celebrities now which is kind of awesome. And this idea of like the idea that someone like Joe pug can host a or can host a podcast and that that's how I discover him and then feel like I'm partaking in this community with him. Yeah. I'm not sure there would have been room for a lot of the people I listened to in the, you know, RCA Columbia, you know, EMI age of music. No. And that's the other thing. Um, just, just to, loop back loop that back onto the whole recording conversation the question you had you know at the same time the, you wouldn't have been you wouldn't have been able you wouldn't have had any mechanism to even make uh your music like it would you know because there was no other way other than um getting in one of those ridiculously expensive studios uh that really you could only afford Unless you had some crazy wealthy be- uh, patron of some sort, you were going to have to get on, on a deal and get basically the the favor of the gods would shine on you and then you could do that. And uh, and then maybe it would go somewhere and maybe it wouldn't. But to even play the game, the price of entry was so astronomical, you know. Uh, you go back and like look at the equipment that they would have had in, you know, Abbey Road when they were when the Beatles were recording. I mean, I would love to have some of that equipment for sure because of the 
the character of it, um, but you, as far as like pure power of what you can accomplish, I mean, you can replicate so much of that for such a smaller investment now, it's crazy. So that's that democratization is pretty exciting too. Um, it gives everybody access in a new way, um, which, you know, in some ways your the market is a lot more flooded than it was before. So it can be more difficult to kind of poke through, but, but you're right. I mean, every, there are all these pockets of, of uh, notoriety that I don't think would have existed before. And yeah, like without podcasts are a great example. Like I wouldn't have heard of a guy like Joe Pug outside of that context. It is. I find the concept of home recording interesting because, I mean, I listen to a lot of home recorded stuff, even from the nineties, like a lot of that four track stuff. Um, and at no point do I go, Oh, this sounds like shit. Right. I do find that maybe there's a watering down with the instance of everyone having pro tools and watching YouTube tutorials (laughs) and trying to make music that sounds like it was made at Abbey road. Um, yeah, because I find there's a lot of this like characterless, like flat home recorded music. Um, where I can tell immediately, I know exactly what they did. Um, and that has kind of scared me off of it in ways, but I also think like, like Reaper is probably the new Tascam. And if Reaper is the new Tascam, well, you know, imagine this Tascam that has infinite tracks and comes with every single type of processing you'd want. Yeah. Inside. Well, I, I, I hope I host this, uh, which you're welcome to. I was going to send you some uh, an invite after we're done here, but I've, we, I started just throwing together this like uh, Zoom hangout every few weeks of people who are just screwing around with home recording and trying to figure it out. And we just kind of, we'll do like, someone will give a little studio tour of their setup and then um, people can just ask each other questions or sometimes we'll have a little theme that we'll chat through or whatever just to kind of like, no one's an expert, but just to share what we've tried, what's worked, what hasn't worked. Um, and one of the big conversations we've had, like there, there's someone in there who's, she's a fantastic musician, uh, really good at like vocal harmonies and stuff. And she's, she's done studio recordings before, but she wants to get into kind of having the ability to do it on her own as well. And so her setup, she got herself an interface and she's recording into uh, GarageBand on her iPad, like just on an iPad. And she sent me like her first couple of recordings and I was blown away. Like they were better than a lot, like better than most of the stuff that I did for the first some number of years that I was recording for sure. And so that's one of the topics is just like, that's come up over and over again. It's like how tools like that, um, it's just so crazy how powerful those things are. And, uh, you know, for a few hundred bucks, you can get something in your hands that really, if your songwriting, if your performance is good and your music is good, that that's everything you need to capture a simple, solid performance, right? If you want to go put a whole bunch of crazy production into it and stuff like that, then yeah, you might need some more than that. But if you've got a good, a good song and you can play a guitar and you can sing and, whatever um it's pretty easy to capture that now and that's what i i don't i think that's the stuff where it's like people don't ultimately care how it was recorded they they care if they can hear the emotion in it if they can hear the heart of the song still comes through right right 
I mean, all that, all of the Daniel Johnson stuff is sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as far as recording quality, right? But it's like if that's all the Daniel Johnson that people can get, they'll take it because because they, they want those songs, right? Well, and you even there are criticisms of the later Elliot Smith stuff or like from a basement on the hill because that was finished postpartum postpartum sorry postmortem that was not the right word um that's the thing you might chop but i think it's funny so i'll leave it um but the yeah that stuff is it's interesting to hear him produced that way but it certainly doesn't feel as much like him as like either or um as hearing him just double everything into a task gam and call it good but I also think it's there's there's maybe an expectation to set, and that's one of the things I worry about with as I try to like I recorded this Christmas single myself, and I was pretty proud of it, and then I sent it to my mom, and she's like, "Oh, the vocal sounds bad." I'm like, "What are you talking about? That's the best vocal I've recorded." But then I've <laughs> noticed there the things you don't know that you don't anticipate, like it sounded good on my studio monitors, but the moment it was mastered and on Spotify, it something about the vocals was lost in the Spotify compression. So there's something to, to know there. And I think that's certainly, I mean, that's where learning comes, but that's also where it can be extremely valuable to have an engineer. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I'm coming to as well is like when you've worked at home by yourself so much, like I have, um, you, and, and I'm not, that doesn't make me an expert by any means. It, it, it means I've lost quite a bit of perspective over the, over the years because I'm just listening to my own stuff, trying to evaluate it. Right. And I do have people that I send it to for feedback or whatever, but it's still not the same as working with uh, a producer either, where someone is, um, someone was just telling me the other day I was in like a music business hangout. I don't remember the context, but this person had worked with some pretty big artists and, and met like knows a bunch of producers that have, and he said, like, so many times, if you were to hear this artist that you know, before they worked with this produ- before they worked with a producer, and after they worked with a producer, like the way a producer was able to hear something and be like, why don't you try and like, have you ever thought that maybe you're singing this song too high? Like, why don't you try and drop it down an octave and see where your voice sits on that? L- just little things like that, that um, you kind of limit yourself by your own... Um, sphere of knowledge, I guess. So letting other people into the process, aside from the audio quality and all that stuff, there's the the creative process, I think, too, where you're brought you brought in your palette with every person that you add if they're if they're good people. Yeah, and I think that's down a lot to the individual producer. Like there are cert- there have been times where I listen back to a decision that was made in production and it's not like I'm going, oh that is blatantly terrible or wrong but like my song delicate on the record we ended up making it this like kind of outlaw cowboy sounding thing which sounds cool but i've noticed i have a dissonance towards that song every time i hear it the rest of the album like yep these are my songs sounding like my songs but that particular song it it sounds cool and I don't think it's bad and I understand why I chose to include that version, but it certainly didn't retain the character that I meant for it to have. 
So it is hard to measure when, I mean, I look at that like super production period in the eighties when Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan and just everyone, uh, started becoming super produced. Yeah. Like that's why the Jeff Buckley version of hallelujah was the one that made it famous. Cause the original version was like everything of the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, you know that guys like Leonard Cohen and Bruce Coburn are good songwriters because their music survived that production. Right. It's like, the, it has its own like character to it for sure. Like its own kind of charm, especially the, the Leonard Cohen stuff. Um, but man, weird choices just we just weird production a lot of that 80s stuff it's pretty funny a thing i think about spotify and in with home recording is it really isn't sustainable to do to be making things that cost a lot of money anymore like if you can't make the money back you'll you'll just bankrupt yourself in your life if you try to put out a five ten thousand dollar album every year um, yeah. like to me, and I'll ask if you feel the same way to me, if basically if it's, if we consume it for free, we make it for free. You go, you have to create some value exchange there. Like Netflix has found a way to line that up by funding some of these, uh, premium TV series that they make and, and movies that are Netflix exclusive content. But I don't see that happening in streaming. And my fear is that it's going to end up becoming this situation where just everything is pretty minimally produced reflects what you're paying for it. Mm. Yeah. I wonder, do you feel like that's happened already? Like, are you noticing that happening already? I've noticed a lot of the, a lot of the like young indie bands that are popular bands yeah. like men I trust or uh, Japanese breakfast um, things that are like cool and hip with people who are like 18 now. Yeah. Um, tend to be home recorded with a DAW. Um, and they're not necessarily bad. Like I, I like a lot of these bands, but I certainly, or a good example, there's a band called pool kids. They're kind of a math rock band from uh, Florida. Yeah. And they have this awesome record and this awesome audio tree live recording, but I would love to hear that record made by Steve Albini. You know, it's not that their record is bad, but the drums could be bigger, right? Like, right. It's almost, it feels to me like uh, a bit of a waste in a way to take awesome content and then be limited by the production abilities of everyone within that band. Interesting. Cause I always thought that was, I just assumed that was a choice. Cause so I have teenage kids, so I'm getting exposed to cool music through them, <laughs> not through myself. Um, and I'm trying to think, trying to think of the one band that shows up on my daughter's playlist all the time. Uh, the song is like, I'm just a kid. Um, I'm just a kid. Ding, 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 ding. It's like such a monotonous song. Um, shoot. It's probably in my recently played because my kids my kids' playlists hack my, uh, their Google Homes get connected to my Spotify, and then all this music that I have no idea what it is starts showing up in my, <laughs> my 2020 Rewind was like Harry Styles and some other bands that I had no idea who they were. I do know who Harry Styles is, but I didn't know who these other ones were. 
anyway, I can't think of the name of the band, but yeah, this really, really lo-fi, um, it's like a cheap drum machine, kind of a crappy guitar, and a pretty uninspired vocal. But it feels to me like that's a, a choice. Like, I feel like they're kind of trying to tap into, like, the kind of Velvet Underground aesthetic where, um, you know, the, the audio isn't really high fidelity because, well, I don't know why. I feel like, I feel like those guys probably could have been connected to people with money to make great sounding records, too. Not that I don't. Maybe I'm being speaking sacrilege right now, but there's... There's this really lo-fi kind of sound that sounds like it belongs. I, I just didn't think it was a, a limitation of the current technology. I thought it was more of like a, a, an homage to a past sound. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I think it depends. I think certainly there's a stylistic choice that happens. I know with like, like SoundCloud rap, and I have this kind of conspiracy theory that SoundCloud rap was... <laughs> perpetuated by record labels to bake really high margin, low cost music. Um, yeah. which I think it probably came up organically that low fidelity DIY sound, but I think record labels went, Whoa, people will listen to things that are made for nothing in 20 minutes. And the more we can encourage the culture to want that, the more we can crank out super hits that cost us nothing. Um, so I, do, I think there's an element of that, but I also, I see, a, I see a general kind of apathy, maybe like a lot of what's cool. Like I have two teenage sisters and I, the things they listen to, like I wouldn't be, I wouldn't deliver to mastering. Um, and I do think that it is just an apathy of uh, kind of like, oh, yeah, this this beats sick or whatever. Like, I, I don't know. I, I feel like a 40-year-old man trapped in a young body. But but <laughs> I do feel very, like, get off my lawn and, and that, you know, that these... Yeah, that's just, it's just beginning for you, Breton. It's just, you know, settle in. Yeah, yeah. Start a... But, you know, I, so I don't know. I see it both though. Like I do think, uh, that's why I was, that's why I was asking if you thought that that was happening. Cause I also see like, um, uh, records coming out that are, I think really well, like really beautiful. Um, I really enjoyed the, the production on the, uh, Phoebe Bridgers record that came out this year. Right. Um, I, I enjoyed, uh, Leaf, Leaf Volebeck, am I saying his name right? He had like some really cool sounds on his record. I really like uh, the sound. I, I'm a big Bahamas fan. I love the tones and the sound that he's getting. I love uh, the stuff that Andy Schaff is putting out. Like there's stuff that has like a definite vibe. And then on even other spectrum, like I think of... Um, uh, I wanted to say... It's not our, I want to say Arcade Fire, then I want to say Arctic Monkeys. It's neither of those bands. Uh, Vampire Weekend, their album that came out early this year. I think it was this year. Um, that's like a super complex, like tons of stuff going on production-wise in that record. 
I think that is a Rick Rubin produced record. Yeah. So, but you know, I I do agree, it and there still exists. <laughs> there are these instances like Dead Oceans is an interesting label because it seems like they're one of the only labels that still has money, like. Mm that Phoebe Bridgers record is made in serious studios with serious session players. Um, and the production on both of her records, I think is really interesting. Um, and somehow I, I think she's almost anomalous though. Like that Punisher record came out and it sold out physically its first day. That doesn't happen anymore. Mm. Um, wow. so I do. And, and Phoebe Bridgers is actually a really interesting kind of case study in music because you know she like sure she's cute but she's not the she's not your Dua Lipa like Katy Perry situation um it is because she writes awesome songs and yeah oh well, for sure and it is interesting to see some of these strange production choices turn her into one of the biggest things on earth um it's something that's you know, like none of that music is very like pop music. It's pretty, it's, it's slow and it's introspective and, and a little risque lyrically. So yeah, I, I find that a really interesting thing to happen in our current musical climate. Yeah. Well, I think, I don't know. I, I'm just an optimist, Bratton. <laughs> I, I, I can't, I've tried and I'm not good at being cynical. It's why I wear a bow tie when I play music. Cause I've just, I've just given up on being a cynic. I can't do it. <laughs> I, it's probably a better choice maybe if sometimes in life, but I, I, uh, I believe like people are hungry for that stuff still and they always will be. So I feel like there will always be a place for music that, reaches a little harder, a little higher, a little deeper. Um, you know, as much as it's, as much as there's like so much kind of sugar candy that's out there as well, that's always going to be popular too. Um, there's always going to be, that's always existed at the same time. I mean, you look at like songs like, uh, um, uh, I don't even want to say the name of the song. I get so embarrassed by this song. The um, <laughs> uh, WAP. Oh, yeah. 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 And you're like, this is so ridiculous. This is, but if you go back to like, um, like Purple People Eater, like, or like, Umau Mau Baba Umau Mau, like, there's always been the stupidest songs that have been out just about nothing or about something that's, kind of secretly crude. I think that one's not so secretly crude, but <laughs> that that stuff has always existed in music and been really popular. But at the same time, you've also had the most classic songs in history that have come out concurrently, right? So I think it's always kind of a both end thing. And I think there's always a market and a hunger uh, for both. That's what gives me hope anyways. Right. Harking back to a little earlier in our talk, um, you mentioned getting into music a little later than, than many do. Um, and already having a family is touring something that you saw in your path. How did, if, 
yes, then I'd love to hear some touring stories. And if less or so, I'd love to hear about how you have approached building a fan base without, um, you know, subjecting yourself to putting yourself in those grimy rooms in front of unsuspecting people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny because like as a 40 year old guy, like I actually don't, I just don't like being in those grimy rooms a lot of the time, if I'm honest, it's like, like I I don't even want to be here. Like I like to I like to sit down at a show now. I like to have a have a nice a nice beer. Like I don't want a PBR. I don't want to sit on like a dirty school chair and drink a PBR. That's just not there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm not twenty years old anymore. I'm forty and I like to sit down. I don't wanna get crowd surfing sweat on me anymore. I've done all those things, uh, and I'm happy. I'm happy for a show to start on time and finish by 10 p.m. and all all those really nerdy things that don't work well with being in the scene. Um, so I try and keep that, but then the scene is what it is. So you kind of gotta you gotta be part of it and and um, play the game. But I feel like that's sometimes where some of the disconnect is for me. Is it's just like it's hard for me, even my circle of friends, it's like, uh, they're all older friends. A lot of them have kids too. So they're not coming out to, uh, clubs at like where the show is supposed to start at nine and it doesn't start till 1130. We're not getting out of there till two and they've all got to work in the morning. Like it honestly just doesn't work for so many of the people that I know. Um, but has that made it hard? Yeah. Like if I was a single guy, and I could still stay up till two in the morning without feeling destroyed the next day. Um, then I think I would be, I think I'd be farther than I am now. I think I'd probably be twice as far as I am now, to be honest. So that's something I had to recalibrate early on. And I think that's just, it's just the life I've chosen to live. Like I value my family. I value all the things I have. Um, so it's not like I have a regret about it. But when I started, I remember thinking like, oh, it'd be great to like, you know, do some touring and play some festivals and like get some some bigger shows and like be somebody who sells records and stuff in, you know, three to five years. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to give this the next three years and see what I can do with it. And I didn't realize at the time with like the way I'm able to do a career, I'm on like a 10 year trajectory, like realistically. And if anything, like the article that's going to be written about me in some cool music magazine, if it ever happens, about like the uh, the classic like overnight success kind of thing, that that'll happen in ten years. Like when somebody, someone who doesn't live within three hundred kilometers of me, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I break through whatever that barrier is to get get uh, noticed on the other side of it. Um, I see that honestly as like a ten year journey for me. I think it'll happen. Like I'm not. I'm. I'm. That's kind of what I'm set for. Like I'm. Re- I'm willing to take the ride. But I think you kind of either got to be really persistent, just keep putting your head down and doing the work and making the best stuff you can and making sure it's valuable to you and the people that the fans that you already have and you're serving them well, you got to do that kind of day in and day out and be willing to do that for a long time. 
or you got to do that and push really hard uh, with touring and everything else and you know be out there 200 days a year and whatever else it is and that's just not I just can't live that life so uh, it does make it harder to get a fan base but I've been you know for, for me it's like dipping my toes in little ways so coming out and playing Koi in Calgary building relationships there with people like you with the guys from I'm the Mountain um, I met them doing Alberta Showcase so I feel like I am at a point in my career where I'm starting to make a lot of those connections and playing shows um, outside in my home city and stuff finally which I've been trying to do for a while but it's probably going to be a few years of doing that before I actually get accepted to play at a festival um, it's just it's just everything takes so long <laughs> you know a, a few things I have in response to that and Thanks so much for your time again. We're running a little long here, but this is a good chat. Um, is that I think that the person who is on the road 200 days a year, I'm not sure how fulfilling a life that is. Like, sure, you, I mean, it's a Maslow's hierarchy thing, right? You might be fulfilling this self-actualization need to go play in front of people, but but a lot of those people either can't sustain relationships or, you know, a lot of them end up, lonely alcoholics so it is interesting to hear your story kind of as the antithesis to that story um and the other thing i have to say about that is i've been thinking a lot about this idea of meritocracy like what i've come to realize is people like clinton st john i respect their songwriting the same amount as i do like dallas green who i loved growing up and they're just guys that are my friends now um hmm. So it really doesn't seem to to be about, you know, write great songs and you'll be immortalized in the minds of fans. Um, and increasingly, as I am around people like you, um, like you have songs like Places We Can't Live, where it's like, that's a thing I've thought. And I just, I've never thought about relating to anyone about that. Mm -hmm. And to me, like, that's the work. That's what you're... That's what I chase is that the connection to someone where they think about the thing I said later and they're like, yeah, I feel seen and heard by that. So, mm. I mean, regardless of if that article gets written, uh, maybe maybe it's a, a relevant pumping of your tires to uh, to know that, you know, even if the Spotify numbers aren't tens of thousands a month, you know, it's like whatever number that are listening might still be having that exact uh, transaction that you're hoping for. Yeah, well, that's kind of you to say. I appreciate that. Thanks, Brendan. I do try and keep that perspective. Um, yeah, I'm. I think I'm pretty healthy. <laughs> I think I'm pretty happy, um, and I'm able to. I'm able to. Uh, I I have no debt musically. I'm not carrying any debt. I'm able to kind of put stuff out um, semi regularly. Uh, so those are all those are all success. Like in that way, I, I consider myself a a success at this point. Like I'm pretty happy with where I've gotten. Um, there are days, of course, where you, where you get into the comparison trap and you get frustrated. But I think if I look at it by with a more realistic lens, I think uh, I see it more like what you just described, and I think I'm pretty happy with it. I mean, to me, there's there's no uh, when you get those people saying stuff like what you just said about places we can't live. I have those kind of experiences every once in a while where 
somebody says that a song connects with them in a, in a really deep way, um, like, that's, that's incredible. That's incredible to be able to do that in life, to take a, a gift that I've been given for whatever reason and, like, translate that into something that connects with somebody else and gives them the gift and the gift, gift keeps moving. Um, that's a really special thing. So, yeah, we're lucky. I, I think I think your heart is the same in making music, Brad. And so you're, you know, I hope you I hope you're hearing the words you're saying uh, in your own ears too. <laughs> you know, I, I have to try. I was like, I'm in business school, and I can't say I've learned anything consequential from business school. Um, I still don't know how to market anything to anyone. Um, I always think I have the idea that's gonna, you know, you'll, you'll like my last record, I fully hit the mark of everything I set out to do for myself. And I have no regret or, you know, ill thought towards myself about that. I am proud of accomplishing what I meant to accomplish with it. But then you see like, Oh, 500 streams on the whole record. And in a way you can go, wow, that's 500 streams. That's 500 individual times anyone has listened to any of these songs. And in another yeah. way, it's like, oh, but I spent all this money and I have, you know, like this, this and that. And you can't get wrapped up in that. I started digging into Spotify data and like, whoa, like music kind of like me does really well in like Denver and like <laughs> all these like secondary markets. And I just exhausted myself looking at data and I realized how inconsequential it is. And I thought about why Spotify makes all that data and Instagram too accessible to us. You know, mm. they don't owe us anything. And, uh, and I thought about it for a moment. I was like, the more they emphasize numbers and comparison, because there's even a feature on Spotify for artists where you can, you can compare yourself to your friends or just anyone Yeah, you can put like Kanye West in and watch your streams go away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I was like, why would they be incentivized to spend the money doing that? And why is it my business? How many streams Joe pug had today? And I thought about it. I was like, Spotify's deal is getting ears there and so is instagram's deal um so what a better way to incentivize this free content creation than to get us to be competitive we're not competing for money we're competing just for either self gratification against other people i was like oh i'm falling into the exact trap i meant to fall in here mm. um so i think it's it's really important to try to maintain that like mindset that what you're doing is honest and it's true and uh and it's the best you can do and you're doing it because you're motivated to do it but i've kept you for a while here is there anything you're working on or places that you'd like to send people on the way out oh yeah thanks that's kind of you well, i've enjoyed myself so no worries uh my wife works shift work, so this is one of the days where I'm she's she's gone, and I'm just like, you know, I've probably kept you for a while because I'm just lonely here at home. <laughs> I'll take the blame on this one. Um, where can I? Yeah, so I've been working on uh, as I'm waiting for this grant for this other recording that I was talking about. I got these five songs that I really love that are sitting in limbo, and the recording is sounding great so far. And I just need to get the other half of the money so I can go and finish that. So while I'm waiting on that, and those songs are kind of in song 
studio jail right now. They're waiting to be released. Um, I've been working on uh, an album at home kind of since the pandemic started. And uh, I'm getting pretty close. So I'm thinking uh, like Places We Can't Live is kind of the first single from that upcoming album. So I've got nine or 10 songs that are all just about ready to go. I've, I've done some really fun collaborations with some artists uh, in Denver, actually, <laughs> in, your, in your market in Denver. There you go. Yeah. Um, so that'll be, that'll be like early 2021 coming out. Uh, I don't, I'm not putting a date on it yet, but, but I'm committing to early 21 to myself, quarter one. Um, but yeah, all of that, I, I'd say vonbeaker.com. If people like songs, if people like love songs about the circus, then that's where they want to go is vonbeaker.com because you can sign up for my email and you'll get two, two MP3s about love songs about the circus for free. And we all know how valuable MP3s are to people right now. So they love them. Um, yeah. <laughs> Can't get enough of them. Yeah. It's, it's really easy to save them on an iPhone. Yeah. You know, Apple I hasn't think... made that difficult at all. Yeah. It's actually funny how difficult it is to actually like get, uh, but yeah, you'll also get the stories of why and how I wrote those, why, why I wrote songs about falling in love at the circus. So, if the stories behind songs are interesting to you, I think that would be a good place to go. Uh, and then, of course, you know, as we've been talking about, nothing is as important as Spotify numbers. So look up Von Beaker on Spotify and follow me three times if you can. And I'll feel validated. Right. I even wish people would just leave me playing on a loop, like make a playlist of my songs. I don't care if they actually hear them. I just want the number <laughs> so that I don't cry at night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know what? I'm feeling really bad for Breton at this point. So forget about me. Just go to <laughs> Breton's Spotify and put his album on repeat. And I, I feel the need to to clarify that this is more of a like <laughs> running bit about uh, about the traps I watch myself fall into. But but that's awesome. I'm looking forward to those new tunes. Like I said, places I can't or places we can't live. Um, what is it? What is it? What is places it? we can't live yeah places that are not habitable um places that are not habitable yeah yeah that that's a great track so i'm looking forward to the next ones yeah yeah thanks i uh me too <laughs> they're coming together coming together pretty well i think so i think you should probably always say the thing you're working on now is the best thing you've ever done right otherwise what's the point but well it should be to you <laughs> But yeah, they're they're coming along well, and yeah, hopefully before too long when all this craziness, as soon as all this craziness ends, I cannot wait to be back in Calgary, uh, play live and meet some more folks there again. So. Thanks so much for tuning in. I want to encourage and ask everyone once again that if you like the show, please share it with people who might dig it. That is a big big help for me. It helps me remember that there are other people on earth. And one of the main reasons that I'm doing this is to try to create some connection and to try to have some supplement for when us songwriter folks like to sit around and drink barley juice um, after hours, after gigs. So please, please get it out if you like it, if you want to support it. That's greatly appreciated. If you want to support Von Beeker, and I recommend that you do support Von Beeker, he's amazing. Um, check out vonbeeker.com. That's V-O-N-B-I-E-K-E-R. 
You can find him on all your social media things and on Bandcamp under the exact same moniker. Stay well. Call your friends. We will be back next week. That is going to be December 25th. For those that celebrate that, that is the Jesus birthday. That's Christmas Day. I don't actually think that was Jesus' actual birthday. That is aside. Um, We will have the high school holiday special which will be a unique episode where I talk to one of my best friends on earth, Callum, from high school, who we're starting a band. We'll talk about that too. Anyway, check back in next week if you are tired of your family and you want to throw some earbuds in and listen to a podcast for a while. That will be between me and one of my best friends on earth just gabbing about life and about music and about no dogs in space and other things. 